This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch, covering Untouchable 2010 from the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois on September 25th, 2010. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find our podcasts on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on our own dedicated Open the Voice Gate RSS feed on every podcast platform and application available. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined by my co-hosts as we reach episode 10 of the series, K-Slow. In case, 10 episodes, we have gone into double digits. When when this first started, I thought we might reach double digits next year in this, but nope, we're at 10. So, we started this because I basically evacuated Chicago when the COVID-19 stuff started uh, getting really heavy. And I had time on my hands kind of just in between my classes were suspended at that point. But then even Zoom classes, like my stuff was still time consuming, but no commutes, no job. I had some more time on my hands. I figured, hey, let's watch some Dragon Gate USA. And now I'm committed to as long as I have time in my schedule, I am, I am enjoying going through these shows so much that I would really like to be able to get through all of them as soon as we can. So we're on episode 10 now another 40 or so to go. I'm really enjoying doing these shows. I'm really enjoying what I'm watching. And Mike, I'm always happy to be talking to you. Yeah, this has become one of my highlights of the week, hanging out, talking about these shows. We're hitting a really fun period of DGUSA. It's at least fun for the viewer, maybe not fun for DGUSA in the bank account, but everything in here is like kicking to a certain extent. And I, I know I mentioned earlier, these are... This is content that I've noticed that there's now being more and more interest of over the last few weeks. And I'm really happy that's happening because it was a very special time. And as we've talked about before, DGUSA is somewhat responsible at least for the Indies ecosystem in the 2010s and through the 2020s. And it's responsible for like so many important characters as tonight we will be talking about the ascent of one person that we talked a couple episodes about how Johnny Gargano is here. He's going to be with us through the duration. We have another key star that comes here, and he'll be with us for the duration of the program. We're talking about Untouchable 2010. This is back in Chicago right after their one-year anniversary in Philadelphia. We're going from July of 2010 to September 2010. So we, there's a lot of events to cover here before they started this double shot, because this is their one of their first like double shot weekends around one of their established places as 
On the 25th, they did this pay-per-view taping in Chicago that aired later in November. And then the next day, they'll be in Milwaukee on the 26th. Indeed, it is a double shot weekend. And to get the double shot weekend started, we have to go all the way back in time to June 28th, 2010, when Brian Danielson has been signed to compete at the Untouchable Show, September 25th at the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois. It is the same building where Do- or where Danielson had this classic match against Naruki Doi at Open the Untouchable Gate in 2009. And then a follow-up nearly a month later, July 27th, Brian Danielson versus Yamato is officially confirmed for the September 25th show in Chicago. So going into Untouchable, we at least have Danielson versus Yamato to look forward to. And at the time... Danielson is an independent wrestler. Uh, but before we dive in to everything that happened with Brian Danielson uh, between that announcement and this show, let's pivot to Japan uh, to keep things chronologically as the Summer Adventure Tag League Tournament began on August 5th, 2010 and concluded on August 24th, 2010. Uh, you know, the tournament spanned all across the Japan but these two shows happened in Cork and Hall. So I will read you, Mike, real quick, the uh, both the August 5th and the August 24th show. And then if you have any prevailing takes coming away from these shows, let me know. But the tag league matches were Mark Haskins and Pac versus Cyber Kong and Kagatora. Shima and Gamma versus World One of Yoshino and Doi. And Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki versus Shingo Takagi and Yamato. Those are the block matches on the August 5th show. And then August 24th, the semifinals of the Summer Adventure Tag League. It was Yoshino and Doi beating Kanes and Susumi Yokosuka. Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito defeating Shingo Takagi and Yamato. And in the finals of the Summer Adventure Tag League 2010, Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi defeated Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito. Mike, do you have any strong thoughts on the 2010 Summer Adventure Tag League? Well, it's an interesting period with the Summer Adventure Tag League. This is before it got really convoluted in a lot of ways, to be honest. It just was one of those things that really you had interesting things going on on these tours. I mean, uh, Doyoshi basically dominated the tournament until they had their breakup. Like, that was just like a big thing about it. But you like look at these teams at least in the final four especially on that 24th cork and you have you have doi yoshi versus kaneska you have marahai sapa versus takagi and yamato like those are at least like when you think about this time period those are like the four big tag teams at least without the exception of anyone of an older generation and then just like looking at the blocks of this you had a lot of like interesting things this was of course when mark haskins was a part of dragon gate which is something that I always like to point out when he comes up because, yes, Mark Haskins was a part of Dragon Gate and him and uh, Pac were kind of like a constant tag team. I think they were called like British Airways was kind of like the nickname that they were given at that time. But, you know, for, for like this time, it was Yoshino recently won the Dreamgate. So you had to think pretty highly that he that he was going to do well. Him and Doi, especially at this time, were the dominant tag team. So it made sense how all these went. I mean, but... The, the, the big thing that we're, we're kind of bearing the lead a little bit, Case, there's one other big match that happened at that final cork and that I wanted to run down for you because it's insane and really shows you where Dragon Gate was at this time. Six-man tag team match. CK won, I'm sorry, Osaka Zenroke and Masaki Mochizuki versus Junji Uzumita, uh Makoto Hashi, and Tsuyoshi Kikuchi. Yeah, so that's a collection of names. I 
Those are some like, guys. I like to publicize my affinity for both Shima and Masaki Mochizuki, and that team of Shima, Gamma, and Mochizuki is a loaded team. I am also, I think, one of the biggest Makoto Hashi fans in the world. I think Hashi, at times, a brilliant professional wrestler. I think his Noah run in the early 2000s, there is some essential Hashi viewing that needs to be done if you have not seen it. Kikuchi is in some of the greatest wrestling matches ever, but he's not really one of my guys. Hashi, on the other hand, I champion him. I love him. I love watching him work. I don't know if I need 2010 Makoto Hashi in Dragon Gate. And this is a <laughs> tournament that I haven't seen any of. I don't think 2009, 2010 are my big blind spots with the company just because of the footage that's available. I love Hashi. I'm not excited at the prospect of, even when it's Shima Gamma Mochizuki, I'm not excited at him in, the, in Dragon Gate. That doesn't sound too appealing to me. Yeah, and it's just a, such an abrupt thing. I don't remember Hashi spending a lot of time in Dragon Gate at this time. This was like right after he would like he started to pare down his career in DDT. He ended up doing 14 matches in Dragon Gate, mostly that fall that he had. Actually, it was, it was all throughout. And it was all in, almost all of it was in either Tokyo or Chiba. So that's kind of wild just to think about like, uh, a match that I think though that would kind of been fun to watch though is the Korkin match of Zetarins versus Hashin Kikuchi. That could get into something. Yeah, those are a bunch of mean dudes there. Uh, yeah. that that don't like each other uh, or anything, and that that does not sound too bad. A, a match that Hashi was in earlier this year was at Sumo Hall. We we talked about this on a previous show. World one of Tanazaki and Pack with Makoto Hashi defeat. Kamikaze of Tozawa and Kagatora with Mark Haskins. What are those three? What are those six guys talking about in the back? Yeah, I guess we did talk about that show. On, Forgot about that match on this show, and I, I guess maybe it's because the Dragon Kid Hoovy combination on that show is what always steals my focus. But <laughs> no, you're right. I guess I have seen some Hashi in Dragon Gate. So Makoto Hashi is in Japan at this time working for Dragon Gate. It is a shame that we never got the chance to see what a Brian Danielson run in Dragon Gate proper might have looked like. And we will never know because on August 15th, 2010, Daniel Bryan returns at WWE SummerSlam event as the surprise member of Team WWE in the WWE versus NXT Survivor Series 14-man elimination match, a team that included Chris Jericho, Edge, John Morrison, R-Truth, and Bret Hart against the Nexus team of Darren Young, David Otunga, Heath Slater, Justin Gabriel, Michael Tarver, Skip Sheffield, and Wade Barrett. Yeah, so this was uh, Danielson coming in. They, they had at the time that The Miz just won Money in the Bank. He was with Alex Riley, and he was like, oh, I might be your partner, but Nexus is too dangerous. And Chris Jericho already like feigned like that, but he decided to join up with it. And it was it was to the day of, there's like, is it going to be Miz? And then Cena got on the microphone. It's like, oh no, we got someone. We got Daniel Bryan. And they brought him back to a thunderous eruption. And at least for like the first month after he came back, it was all about uh, Danielson and Miz. Like he, something that I completely forgot about until we watched the show. Danielson becomes US champion very quickly in this, on his return. In case, it kind of technically is the first DG USA to WWE that we see. The, the first person making the promotion. 
Yeah, that is true. That is something I have first not world one member. About. First world one member in WWE, not the last, but the first. This is uh, just an unfortunate thing in wrestling history. I mean, I'm glad Brian got paid. I'm glad that he ended up on the E network and is able to make, you know, the money that he, you know, deserves to make. But creatively, as a wrestler, I feel like 2009, 2010, Danielson was on the cusp of doing something really innovative and really unique. And part of that was just going to be what his version of Evolve was going to be that we never, ever got to see. But I also just think, like, his in-ring style was changing in a way that no one has really... I mean, it was, you know, a battle arts influence, but, you know, also, you know, a, a lot more grappling than it was striking... And in WWE, I talked about him on the last show, like, I've just never enjoyed his WWE stuff as much as everybody else. You know, some people don't like Rey Mysterio and his run with that company because they don't like the repetitive nature of his matches. I look at Brian, and he's someone that, you know, I think he's one of the 10 greatest wrestlers of all time, but I also don't really consider him to be in the running for the greatest. I think he's that second tier of, you know, legitimate greatness but I also just know watching him in that company, like, man, he could be doing so much more. And it's not a moves thing. It's not an indie cred thing. I just think they neuter creativity. And Brian Danielson is one of the biggest victims of that. Yeah. And especially like coming out of that incredible match with Shingo Takagi and with a match on the that's on the precipice of him and Yamato, things were really interesting with him at this time and Dragon Gate USA and and seeing how the next five years would see the the bigger rise of the indies and all of that there's a lot of ways that this could have gone that would have been really interesting that sadly I mean he's has a family now and he has a paycheck but it just seems like he's someone that every time there's been a little tease of him leaving it's just never going to happen it's one of those things that at least to me I like pushed it far, so far back behind my head that I just don't expect it anymore like, do you ever expect Danielson to leave and have interesting matches again? I think he's kind of just in this system. Like, there really is a difference between Brian Danielson and Daniel Bryan, and that's where we are, and I don't see it changing. You know, I I hope that he is unhappy to a point that maybe it's not ruining his life and he's not coming home angry, but I hope that he's unhappy and unfulfilled creatively in that company to a point that he feels like maybe he has something left in the tank and maybe he can make a jump. But I just, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's old now. It's just not going to happen. I mean, he had, he had a shot to leave and change wrestling a few years ago and he did it. And ever since then, you know, the, the Daniel Bryan dream match series never happened. I haven't seen Daniel Bryan versus Roderick strong anywhere. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen Daniel Bryan versus Akira Tozawa anywhere. I've seen him wrestle big Cass, and that was, you know, that was the talk when Danielson resigned was, oh my God, I mean, they're, you know, they're going to, they're going to give him all these opportunities. It hasn't happened. Instead, he's wrestled big Cass, and, you know, he's been posed with the threat of wrestling in Saudi Arabia, 
and not to get on my soapbox, but, you know, briefly, I mean, I made a decision among other things WWE has done that disgust me when they started going to Saudi. I said, I have no interest in supporting this company, even, you know, you know, my 0.001% that matters. I no longer want to subscribe to the network. I no longer want to give into whatever archives they have. I think they're repugnant people. And Brian Danielson seems like a really good guy. And it's a shame that what could have, what could have been a post prime, what could have been a really interesting time for him is wasted on people that just don't like professional wrestling and don't like seeing people succeed. I, I, the more I think about it, the more frustrated I get because there is no company with more resources. There is no company that continuously fucks up as much as they do. But remember Mike, they have to cut people. Okay. Did they just give Ric Flair a contract? Yes. Did ring of honor sign people despite not running a show in months now? Yes. But no, remember the billion dollar entity, they are the ones that have to cut people. I mean, it's just, and I think one of the things of frustration kind of loop us back into 2010. We had this run on him in the Indies when he came back fresh out of being fired after the Nexus invasion. And it was pretty enlightening in a lot of ways. Like we talked about on the last episode about during the match with Takagi, where he had like the moment before he did his kip up, where you, you tell he was like soaking it in. And it just was like a very, it was actually probably one of the more emotional moments that I think I've seen in DGUSA was like just that one pause he made. And then he would continue having like this. He had this match of Yamato. He'll have a match on the next episode that we talk about. But he was doing like all these interesting things. And it's just like, oh, we had a taste of what you would be like again. And that's never going to happen. Or if it's going to happen, it's going to be a drastically different world for that. So luckily we had that Takagi match. We have this interesting time period that he went back to WWE. He very soon after won the U.S. title, but he was still allowed to finish his bookings. And that's a big thing going forward, at least in our timeline, leading up to Uprising 2010. Or Untouchable 2010. We talked about Uprising already. Yeah, so he gets to finish out in Chicago and Milwaukee. And we'll obviously talk about the matches uh, that happened on those shows. And then as we move into the next double shot, we will once again bring up Danielson to survey the scene without him. Because I think it's important to look at what could have been. But that will come... In the coming weeks, for now, we are going to August 24th for the Dragate USA Newswire. As Gabe Sapolsky says, the four-way match at the end of the Dragon pay-per-view putting, pitting Ricochet, Chuck Taylor, Eric Cannon, and Adam Cole together was so cutting-edge, so insane, and so athletic that we felt these types of matches deserve their own name. DGUSA is pleased to introduce the four-way freestyle and the six-way freestyle. The rules are simple. No tags needed. Go all out and show your stuff. The key is that the first fall wins, so this means competition will be intense. And this style will come to the Midwest in September. We get it on the Chicago show with Drake Younger versus Chuck Taylor versus Johnny Gargano versus which Rich Rich Swan. Mike, remind me, was the four-way freestyle a thing in Ring of Honor during Gabe's time or no? Well, he had like the scramble matches. Maybe that's what I'm thinking yeah. of because I was shocked to read this. And for Gabe to act like it was, well, first of all, he acted like he was inventing the four-way match, which he did not. <laughs> no, that match has existed for a long time. It's also so Gabe that his innovative idea is calling something a freestyle, and that is the branding that he puts behind it. More power to him. But I couldn't remember if that was the name of the Ring of Honor four-ways as well. And I was like, well, I mean, what announcement is this? I mean, I guess if we're going to get more good matches, that's good. But 
it should be noted that with Gabe in particular, the four-way really struck a chord with him. So we'll be seeing more and more of those as we continue. Also on August 24th, uh, Gabe says in the Newswire, Mike Quackenbush and Jigsaw have their eyes on Japan. They have set up a conference call with with the DGUSA office for later today, and we hope to have more in tomorrow's DGUSA news alerts. I now fast forward a month to September 22nd when we get the unfortunate update that Jigsaw suffered a first-degree sprain of his MCL in his knee at last Sunday's Chikara show. He will be out three to four weeks. Of course, that means that the lineups will have to change. So instead of getting what was initially announced as Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi versus Quackenbush and Jigsaw in a match that perhaps Quackenbush and Jigsaw would have gone over, we now get a three-way match between Mike Quackenbush, Akira Tozawa, and Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk. And Speed Muscle is now wrestling the team of Shima and Ricochet instead of the singles match that was supposed to occur between Shima and Ricochet. So this card is drastically altered by the one jigsaw injury. Yeah, and I've pulled up that Sunday Chikara show. Now that I remember it, like it was a DQ that happened and they kind of like had to go to it and I don't know, and I've not necessarily done all the research to figure out this for certain. I don't think that... I think that was just a Gabe thing saying they were going to go to Japan at that time. Like, because Chikara, like, he... Chikara would have, like, agreements with companies in Japan for, like, a year. And that was it. Like, they had an agreement with Big Japan. They had people go to Big Japan. Osaka Pro, they had a pretty solid one, and they had a little bit of one with, like, Michinoku Pro did not seem like that at that time. Like, like when you brought that up to me when we were doing pre-pro, I was stunned. I was like, really? They were talking about that? That never seemed like a kind of thing. It's, that seemed like a Gabe thing, which I might be wrong on this. And if I am, please slide in DMs and correct me on this. But yeah, and it's kind of wild to think about that case okay, because if that match went through, if it was Speed Muscle versus Quacksaw, do we see the elevation of Ricochet in this next show? It's certainly something to think about, and I think we'll talk about it when we talk about the tag match even more so. I was so surprised at the proponent of the Shima versus Ricochet singles match because it would have made sense given that we had Shima versus Gargano at the one-year anniversary show. But Shima versus Ricochet is a match that only ended up happening one time, and that was Champion Gate 2013 in a match that, I don't know about you, Mike, but I have never seen that match. Do you have any memories of Champion Gate 2013 and the Shima versus Ricochet match that occurred? All right. Uh, that would have been during Shima's Monster Reign. I know Indeed. That. One of his, one of his, I think his last defense actually before the Shingo match. No, he would have had the, uh, uh, the uh, Dead or Alive match before that. But this was after, because Champion Gate was still 2013 at that, or uh, not 2013. Champion Gate was still in June at that point. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going I'm looking this up because I do not... I remember this match happening, but I do not remember the the match itself. Like, when you said, like, one match on here, I was thinking, like, oh, it must have happened at, like, a King of Gate tournament, but obviously that's not the case. All right. Yeah, it was his last offense before the Shingo match, June okay. 16th, 2013, on a show that also had the Jimmys versus M2K in a Triangle Gate match, and... Looking at that card, not a ton else, but Shima versus Ricochet was the match. Hakata Star Lanes was the venue. Not taped. I've, ne- I've never seen that. Oh, not taped, really? 
not taped. At least according to Cage Match, and I don't remember seeing it because I would remember this match. This would be yeah, because this is. I mean, this is right around the time that I began watching the company. Granted, it was a little bit after Shima's reign, but had there been footage of a Shima versus Ricochet match, I would have scoped it out immediately. Now I definitely know I have not seen this match because this was the initial M2K reunion, which is a very fun brief period of 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was the time that they still used the M2K theme, and of course they couldn't get away from having the M2K theme on Gaora, so. You know, that can't happen. Yeah, no, this is interesting also because of how things set up in 2013 with, like, Ricochet at this point was just about to really, like, take off in Dragon Gate. And it's just interesting to see, like, all this happen. I'm trying to think, did he... Yeah, he won King of Gate that year, and that's what had the title. Because I remember him winning King of Gate and becoming a big news because he was the first ever Gaijin to win King of Gate. Yeah, we just passed the anniversary of that because he beat Susumu and Shingo in the same night and then had all this momentum going into a Shima match. And then a year later, he would go on to win the Dreamgate title at Champion Gate now at the end of February, early March, like it is now when he defeated Masato Yoshino and became the first foreign Dreamgate champion of all time. So this is... For Dragon Gate standards, this is peak ricochet. We are in, well, I guess in 2013, we're entering that period. 2010, we are a long ways away from it. We are, but it's interesting going back and watching this match with Ricochet when we get to it. But yeah, no. So I'm trying to think what we were even talking about at that moment. That we were talking us... about Jigsaw and Quackenbush. Oh yeah, Jigsaw and Quackenbush. Uh, and how that changed the card. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, had Jigsaw and Quackenbush gone to Japan, I would have loved to have seen it. But by 2011, Jigsaw is touring Osaka Pro. So if there was an idea in place, it certainly didn't happen. And then by 2011, it was completely off the table. Yeah. No, like that's the thing about Chikara. They, they bounced around with Japanese partners. And even though they had all these Dragon Gate guys come over, it just seemed like, hey, we fly them in a day early and do Chikarasaurus Rex, right? Like, like I'm just, like, thinking this out in my head right now. I apologize. It just would not make sense to me that Quaxall would do that tour given how Chikara is and how Dragon Gate is, really. So, interesting, though. Also on the timeline, that is it for the Newswire events, but because... There was such a large gap between the one-year anniversary show and Untouchable 2010. There is a number of Dragon System-related events that we must discuss before we break down Untouchable 2010. And we start with PWG's Battle of Los Angeles 2010. Mike, when I bring up BOLA 2010, what do you think of? Oh, I think about Akira Tozawa versus Chris Hero. One. A match that changed Akira Tozawa's career trajectory drastically. Yeah, and I think that you watched the Tozawa that we saw in the two, the two nights in Toronto and then the one-year anniversary, and you see Tozawa that walks into Chicago, he figured it out. Like, it clicked in a lot of ways. Like, if you, like, watch these matches in context, and, you know, this was a match that Chris Hero, after having the match, like, for a while, this was one of what Chris Hero considered one of his top matches of all time. It's still something that I consider to be one of Hero's match, best matches of all time. I mean, I would put it in a top 10 at the very least, perhaps a top 5. Singles to, at least, top 5. Yes. To get there, Tozawa defeated El Generico on night 1. Also on that first night, Claudio Castagnoli defeated Ricochet. And what was Ricochet's PWG debut, I believe, and a real coming out party for him away from the Chikara bubble. And then on... August, or I'm sorry, on September 5th, uh, that is the show 
that has Chris Hero versus Akira Tozawa. And that is the high point, as unfortunately, Joey Ryan is the one that wins the 2010 Battle of Los Angeles, defeating Chris Hero in the finals. Maybe we'll say Akira Tozawa wore him down so much that Joey Ryan had to win. But my God, what a what a great peak with Hero versus Tozawa and what a disappointment in that main event. Yeah, I'm looking at this bracket now. And you have London versus Strong in it. You have Aries versus Romero, Joey Ryan versus Chuck Taylor, uh, Brandon Bonham versus Brian Cage, Brandon Gatson versus Ryan Taylor, and then you have the uh, Generico Tozawa and Christopher Daniels versus Hero. Forgot that Daniels was doing PWG at this time, by the way. That st- stood out to me as well. Yeah. That was that was odd. Aries versus Romero, two guys. I am the captain of their fan clubs. We could say it's Aries, Romero, and Makoto Hashi. Those are <laughs> my guys that I think I love more than anybody else. So I need to hunt down that Aries Romero match because I do not remember it. Yeah, and this was if DDT four was kind of like he uh, Tozawa gaining his spot in PWG. This was the moment where Akira Tozawa became a guy in PWG in a lot of ways for the remainder of Tozawa's time. And whenever he would be unaffiliated with WWE in America, he PWG was his home pretty much because of this match that really kickstarted him. He reappeared after his excursion in 2013-2014, but we're talking about a time period for someone that Akira Tozawa, this was, that match was his American coming out party and really his Western coming out party. If you have not seen it, I can't recommend it enough. It is worth getting a month of the high spots network just to watch that match because it is on the high spots network. Like most great PWG shows are. If you have not seen it, it is essential viewing. It is Chris hero versus Akira Tozawa. It is everything you would expect from those two and more. It is a beautiful professional wrestling match. And engaging a time skip, his next match in PWG is probably the match that turned him into an absolute psychopath. Is that the Steen match? That is the Steen match with the Christmas presents. Yes, that is that is good stuff. Other good stuff on the U.S. Indies. We go to September 11th, 2010. Evolve 5 with a card that features Mike Quackenbush versus Chuck Taylor, Jimmy Jacobs versus Adam Cole, Drake Younger versus Sammy Callahan, and a, a feud that a few years later would dominate PWG, Ricochet versus Kyle O'Reilly, and the main event, Brian Danielson, versus Minonori Sawa. Mike, do you have any strong recollections of Evolve 5? Oh, Danielson Sawa ruled. It is phenomenal. Yeah, Min- Minori Sawa, like, I'm really glad that I went to New Orleans two years ago to see Minonori Sawa. Like, probably one of his last matches he probably will have in the United States. He's such a unique wrestler that's great to watch. And him and Danielson, I mean, that was the idea of Evolve, where basically, like, these two kinds of guys coming together. And I mean... Jesus, it was a great match. The rest of the show, I don't remember too much about, to be honest. I remember Jacobs versus Cole being all right and Ricochet versus O'Reilly. They, to reference PWG again, had a great PWG match in 2014. This is before either guy had really found themselves, but that is a good match. That is the semi-main event of that show, so they get some time. But Evolve 5, if you have a WWE live subscription... Give it a watch just for Danielson versus Sawa. It is a thing of beauty. On that same night, we talked earlier when we talked about the Canadian double shot weekend that Ring of Honor was running Supercard of Honor 5. Uh, in the same night, 
as one of the big Dragon Gate USA shows. I believe it was Uprising. Well, right. they do the same thing here. Glory by Honor 2010 is also on September 11th. Mike, I'm going to run down this show match by match because I cannot believe some of what's on here. We open with Kenny King versus Jay Briscoe. Naturally. And Mark... Naturally. <laughs> of course, as you would expect. Mark Briscoe versus Rhett Titus. So they're doing a singles match deal between the Briscoes and the All Night Express. Eric Stevens and the Necro Butcher versus Grizzly Redwood and Balls Mahoney. That's a, insane. A double chain tag team match. Colt Cabana and El Generico versus Kevin Steen and Steve Carino. The TV title on the line. Eddie Edwards defend defended against Sean Davari. Christopher Daniels defeated Austin Aries. The Kings of Wrestling, Chris here and Claudio Castagnoli, they defeated the world's greatest tag team, Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin, in their ROH debut. And then in the main event, a no-DQ match with Terry Funk as the special ringside enforcer, Roderick Strong defeated Tyler Black for the Ring of Honor world title. And if I'm right, Tyler Black would be signing to WWE within the next few months. It is Tyler Black's final Ring of Honor match, and it is the debut of the world's greatest tag team. So it feels like in one night, uh, Ring of Honor becomes a distinctly more Jim Cornette promotion than ever before. And you know there's one person that's left off that showcase. It's our man Davey Richards. Did, do we know what Davey was doing that night? Well, I mean... he was probably kicking ass and taking names, but specifically in regards to professional wrestling— uh, if this is 2010, so at this point, he is New Japan bound, and on September 11th, he is in Japan. Uh, there is a match September 10th, 2010, Gato, Jono, Tomohiro Ishii, and Davey Richards defeating Prince Devitt, Taguchi, Koji Kanemoto, and Tiger Mask. That is at Differariake, and that match sounds incredible. Oh, uh. For as repellent of a person he is, Kochi Kanemoto is one of... How you are about Makoto Hashi, I'm about Kochi Kanemoto. Like... Kochi Kanemoto is canceled, but he is also... Uh, I'm going to watch him anytime he's on tape. Oh, I mean, one of my favorite New Japan matches of the 2000s is Kochi Kanemoto versus uh, Hayato Jr. Fujita. Like, yeah, the Allen 4L special. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's how Allen and I first kind of... Sorry to know that that we both were good people. We both just exclaim for that match. Uh, September September tenth through December twelfth, twenty ten is an interesting time case. Yeah, there's a lot going on there because also as it relates directly to the Dragon system, the second batch of Dragon Gate UK shows occur on September tenth and September eleventh. On the tenth, we get Shingo versus Yokosuka two and a card that features Cyber Kong defeating Joey Hayes, Mark Haskins defeating the Lion Kid, Shingo defeating Yokosuka, Naruki Doi defeating Yamato in a main event of BB Hulk, Yoshino, and Pac defeating Masaki Mochizuki, Shima, and Dragon Kid. And then the next night, Invasion 2, Cyber Kong defeats Marty Skrull, Masato Yoshino defeats the Lion Kid, Yokosuka defeats Mochizuki, BB Hulk and Doi defeat Shingo and Yamato in the main event. Mark Haskins and Pac defeat Shima and Dragon Kid. Uh, you did leave out one match, though. Just another another case of the times that happened earlier on that first show. IW, IPWK British Tag Team match. Mikey Wicklash and Robbie Dynamite defeat the leaders of the new school, Marty Skrull and Zack Sabre Jr. Shame on me. 
I, I just like pointing that match out just because that's like a touch point match, I feel like to say. Like, we, we talked about stuff that's happening in the U.S. Indies. This is where the British Indies were. And, Case, there was one more match show on this tour that I wouldn't talk about before. Have you ever seen Open the German Gate? Yes. So I just realized I forgot to paste this card into my document. But that show happened as well on September 12, 2010. Tommy N defeats Dragon Kid. Masada Yoshino wins a match against ML. Oh, God, I Satoshi. don't know how to... Thank you. I was like, I've seen that name a hundred times, never said it out loud before. Bad Bones defeated Brody Lee. Pac defeated BB Hulk. Shima defeated Mark Haskins. Big Van Walter and Susumu Yokozuka defeat Cyber Kong and Shingo. What a Zach neat Saber... match. Oh, my goodness, that sounds terrific. Zack Sabre Jr. defeats Masaki Mochizuki in the WXW Unified World Wrestling title match in the main event. Yamato defeats Naruki Doi. Mike, to answer your question, I have not seen this show. It is a cool show. Like, it's it's very much like this is how, like, WXW, like, the list attended on this thing at the Torbanal in Oberhausen was only 264, which is insane thinking about, okay, this is where uh, the European scene is. Because we talked about the European scene before on this series. Like, still really fledgling. But 264 people got to see Zack Sabre Jr. and Misaki Mochizuki have a match. And I remember that match being really interesting. Pac versus Hulk was a really solid match. I do not remember Walter and Susumu versus Kamikaze. That is meat slapping up against meat special. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out before uh, before we do like last moments about this tour. Dragon Gate UK got 850 in Hoddesdon, uh, Hertfordshire, England, UK. And I know I'm getting made fun of her, my pronunciation there, but 850 people there, and they got 685 in Cambridgeshire. So doing really well there, all things considered, especially when you compare it to how things went for Dragon Gate in Canada. Yeah, no, it's uh, the, the global brand is very strong at this point, and it's good to see. And Mike, unless you have anything else, I am ready for Untouchable 2010. You know what? I think it's time to return to Chicago, return to the Congress Theater for Untouchable 2010. This was on September 25th, 2010. And the pay-per-view started off with uh, with Hulk coming out, but I do believe there are other things on there. In case you have the uh, full match card pulled up for you. Oh, I can certainly get there in just one second, Mike. It I is, usually have uh, it pulled up accidentally close out cage match. Real fail moment in my life. You know... There are days you have it, and there are days you don't. Don't. Luckily for me, I do have it as the dark matches were a six-man tag between the Soul Touchers, Bill, uh, defeating Billy Ray's Danny Dugan and Gringo Loco of AIW fame, a triple threat match for the AAW heavyweight title between Silas Young, he defended against Samurai Del Sol and GGUSA's own Gran Akuma, and then Eric Cannon defeated Kyle O'Reilly in 10 minutes on the bonus card. A very intriguing match, that last one. I mean, I'm excited about Silas Young in 2010 versus a very young Samurai Del Sol. We'll, we'll come back to Samurai Del Sol later on in the series and Gran Akuma. Like those are those are three kind of interesting matches, but those I don't remember watching those on DVD either. I think this was just like something that it probably was on the bonus disc, but I did not watch it because of the show itself. But we get into the show itself case and we start off with BB Story playing, Hulk coming out and dancing. He has more hair now. And he comes out and dancing, he finishes his dance, and what happens? Hulk gets load blow by the dancer. Real 
sleazy hours sleeper agent to Zell and Moxley attack him. This is another one of Moxley's girls. We find out later her name is Val. And then Mike Quackenbush makes the save to start us off on the show. The three-way match. It is BB Hulk versus Akira Tozawa and Mike Quackenbush. BB Hulk defeats Akira Tozawa in 11 minutes and 26 seconds with the EVO. I hated that they made Hulk dance here. Because at this point, Hulk still, you know, he has more hair, but he still doesn't really have hair. He's still recovering from getting his head shaved at World 2010. And it is in direct contrast to the direction that he was moving in in Japan. But for whatever reason, Gabe decided, you know, make him dance just to get the angle across, which, you know, the girl attacking him. Sure. I mean, it's it. I guess they kind of set it up in a way at the anniversary show. It's corny but I don't totally mind it. And then we get a match that I actually really enjoyed. I don't know where you stand on the opener, but I, I thought this was a really fun triple threat match. I thought this was really fun. I thought it was real interesting that it was Hulk really having two one-on-one matches. There wasn't a lot of Tozawa versus Quackenbush stuff going on. I think part of that might have been because Quack took a really nasty-looking dive to the floor early on. It, it was really kind of cool. Like, Hulk and Tozawa at this time, like, they would have been back in the fourth and and like six-man tags, but they really did not have too much interaction with each other in Japan before Tozawa came over. And this is Tozawa fresh off of probably one of the most encouraging weekends of his life and and PWG. And just real interesting with this, uh, uh, Tozawa just like really was seeming to get a command of the American crowd at this point. There was like this top-rope German attempt that was really kind of nasty where Hulk kind of floated through, but he still kind of took it on his shoulders. And I thought that this was a really fun match, and it just was weird with how BB Hulk has been presented through this promotion so far that Hulk was in the opener here. But I really enjoyed this match. Like this was a fun ten minutes opener. Like this, this show by and large, I really liked it. It felt like a quick watch. I was surprised at how easily I made my way through this card. As for the point you mentioned about how it kind of felt like Hulk versus Tozawa and then Hulk versus Quack at points. It is largely a knock on triple threat matches when they feel like that, but I felt like the way they were able to exclude one person from the match, the way that the match flowed and the way that they knocked guys to the outside, it felt very natural to me for whatever reason, and so it ended up less so feeling like two separate one-on-one matches, whereas a, a, a normal bad triple threat match would feel like that. This just felt like guys were moving around. There were a lot of moving parts in this match. And then you mentioned the top rope German that I believe BB uh, Hulk was supposed to land on his feet, but he didn't. He got launched a little too high, came down on his shoulder, but they would go on to do another German suplex on the canvas where Hulk would land on his feet. And then they went into the finish from there. Three and a half stars for me. I really enjoyed this opener. You know, I this is this is like a weird thing for me. I love the Dragon Gate three-way tag, the four ways. Not really a big one on three-way singles person. I want three stars. Like, it's just not my kind of match. I know there's some people who hate elimination tags. I know there's some people who hate war games. The three-way match, really, especially in comparison to what the freeway, the four-way freestyle is case, this just kind of really felt like just like your standard three-way match to me. But it was a very good one. Like, three stars, that's not, that, that's not a match that I throw out of my house. Other than... Final Gate, what was it, 2012, which was Shima versus Hulk versus Shingo. Yeah, they did the run back of what was supposed to be the Kobe World 2008 main event. 
Oh, that's true. Um, are there any other high-profile triple threat Dragon Gate matches that I'm just not thinking of? There was that really weird one last year with Hulk. Not Hulk, sorry. Uh, Yamato, KZ, and Doi. That's right. That's uh, that's what I was thinking of, because I felt like we just kind of recently saw one. That match, I thought, was really good up until the finish, and the finish got awkward. The second fall, and I, yeah. Yes, and I don't remember the Final Gate 12 match at all. I know I've seen it, but it's been it's been years at this point. Yeah, and it's just one of those things that weirdly, and, and this is something that would be a kind of a fun side project, try to find all like the three-way singles matches because it does not happen very often. Usually, I mean, they're okay. I want to say like they're fine. Like that Final Gate one was a lot better than the one that happened last year, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult match, match to work, and I've never wrestled a match, but just... Looking at the logistics of it, it's like, oh, this, yeah. this seems restrictive. So I, I think there's a reason why Dragon Gate doesn't do it often. But I, this one I thought was excellent. It's what I want from an opener. It's a lot of moves and a hot crowd. I enjoyed it. Yeah, this crowd, for how weird the crowds have been, and especially like since that Toronto tour, which was, if you're not from Toronto, they don't care about you. Chicago was a loud crowd. I did not mention this earlier. Estimated attendance for the show was 500, so it stayed about even from the up the uh, previous Untouchable, and then Fearless was the next show they had in Chicago, so those are the three shows they've had in Chicago so far. So attendance didn't create or anything. It just kind of was the same there. And, you know, it was a fun opener, especially for someone like Tozawa. Like, Tozawa really should only be facing people in the openers at this point, especially if the Freedom Gate champion's there. That's totally fine for me as well. So I liked it. I mean, three stars. It's, weirdly enough, my lowest match on the card. <laughs> like, the rest of the show, I really was much higher on, but I still enjoy this. Post-match, Hulk grabbed the microphone. He said he would kill Kamikaze one by one. He said that part in English. He then went to Japanese and said, come after him because no one will be able to take his belt. We then went backstage as Lenny, uh, Lenny Leonard and Chikarsen repeated what Hulk said and then pitched it to Chuck Taylor as Chuck Taylor, Garga Johnny Gargano, and Ricochet were in one of the locker rooms. I assume this was kind of like the tryout locker room to be honest there. And then Shima came in. This was while Chuck Taylor and Gargano were complaining about Shima. Shima came in to the locker room, completely ignores Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano says, Ricochet, will you team with me tonight? And that set up our main event. Real. So real quick. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no, no. I was, I was pitching to you. Go ahead. So Lenny and Chikaris then do another one of those segments where they're just reiterating stuff, I guess for the purpose of camera time, but we could have just sent it to Chuck Taylor because they they repeated one another and they repeated what BB Hulk just said, even though it was translated and Hulk spoke in English for half the time. Yeah. Needless. The Chuck Gargano ricochet segment starts with Gabe Sapolsky behind the camera, off camera, going, uh, Chuck, can I get a word with you real quick? Which is super funny. It was adorably awkward. Mm -hmm. And then we get the first moment of what I would consider this show to maybe be peak Americanized Shima as Shima no sells Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano, <laughs> which felt like a shoot and says, Ricochet, come with me. And, Oh God, there's so much that I love about Shima on this show, but we will talk about what his match comes. But the, the first part with lineage Carson irrelevant. The second part, a delightfully adorably awkward backstage segment. Really, Sh Shima, I've come to kind of stuff, is probably like, 
he he has no respect for a lot of these people here and he just kind of plays things very dryly and if you look at it in the lens there he's the funniest person in the company he rules there's again we'll talk about there's some shima stuff that i loved on this show yeah and after this segment we went straight to the ring as the soul touches and c red were there and they wanted any team to face them they knew that chakara not Chikara. I'm used to them being in Chikara because they were in Chikara for so long. But they knew that Dragon Gate USA was a big promotion with a bunch of teams saying that they are the best team in the world. They wanted to stake their claim. And that brought out Brody Lee, who said he did not need a partner. And we got a three-on-one handicap match. Brody Lee versus the Soul Touchers. And it went exactly, I think, a minute 30? What was it listed at? A minute 57 as Brody Lee then penned willie richardson with the truck stop and he laid everyone out they have handled Brody lee to perfection at this point this was a very effective uh three-on-one squash where Brody killed all of these guys after the match he gave a boot to the manager c red who sold it like a million bucks and then Brody said that's four guys, but he's not done tonight. And once again, he is coming for a Japanese man, which is still super funny to me. <laughs> well, there's not much of a... We're reaching a point where Dave Meltzer reports are going to become far and far between, but he mentioned that apparently the crowd started chanting at Brody Lee, you're a racist because the Soul Touchers are three African-Americans. And he writes African-American as well, and he said he wanted to fight a Japanese guy. Which... Well, I don't... <laughs> I, I mean, this is not an episode of Yo, Is This Racist, which is another podcast out there. I don't I don't think that's racist, but if it is, please tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just was something that, like, when I was, like, looking through the notes and that happened, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. But, yeah, no, Brody Lee wants to attack a, a Japanese man. He does not refer to them as Dragon Gate wrestlers. He refers to them as Japanese man. Which, which I think is super funny. And if that's wrong, eh, too bad. I mean, yeah. Uh, after this, we had a famed DG USA video package, which stated when Dragon Gate started, there was no bond stronger than Shingo and Dragon Kid. <laughs> Mike, I hated this video package. I'm going to stop you right there. I hated this because, first of all, there were bonds stronger than Shingo and Dragon Kid. When they started teaming, it was the 2008 Cyber Adventure Tag League. Shingo was kicked out of Real Hazard, and Dragon Kid was still with Typhoon. So it was a hodgepodge tandem that turned into Kamikaze. But when I think about the the history and the legacy of Kamikaze, I do not think about Dragon Kid. I think of Shingo, Tozawa, Kong, Kagatora. Dragon Kid is a blip on the radar there. They're teaming, but they are not the strongest bond in the company. And then the video package goes on to say that at Uprising, Shingo gave Dragon Kid an injury causing him to miss the anniversary show, which is not true. Or at least Dragon Kid worked for another two months before he decided that he could not take it anymore. And I don't have an issue with um, perhaps stretching the truth a little bit and saying that Shingo was the one that put Dragon Kid out of commission and caused him to miss the anniversary show. But it didn't happen on Uprising, and this is another one of those small canonical disagreements between Drangate proper and Drangate USA, that if they just would have said, you know, Shingo beat him in Canada and then hurt him in Japan, caused him to miss, you know, the anniversary show, I would have been okay with that. But they specifically linked the Uprising match to Dragon Kid's injury, and that is just simply not true, and that really bothered me. You know, I'm going to ask you, 
Is this a cardinal sin? Explain what the cardinal sin would be. Is it not following things canonically? Or not assuming that your fans would be following the promotion as well? Because I know a lot of people who followed Dragon Gate Japan at the same time as following Dragon Gate USA. We'll put an asterisk next to it. I'm not. Re- it's not that big of a deal, but it is one of those things that I noticed and that it, it bothered me because I noticed it. That's fair. That's fair. I just I'm I'm always trying to have my list of cardinal sins here. So that's you're a big listicle guy. I can't blame you. Like lists. I when this podcast is over, you are doing the 13 cardinal sins of Dragon USA listicle, and you're gonna put all of the the numbers on a different page. Oh, absolutely. So it's a slideshow, and I've got to click through, and there's no view all. God, I hate web design. Anyways. Oh, and you forgot the most important thing. Every three pages, there's going to be an ad. Oh, of course, and you can't skip the ad. And no. I know people need to make money, but not when I'm reading a listicle. Come on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would end to Shingo Takagi versus Dragon Kid. And in this match, which, you know, we're, we're going to get into this myself, but it went 15 minutes and 23 seconds. Did not feel 15 minutes and 23 seconds. Felt a lot longer in a good way, where Shingo Takagi decisively put Dragon Kid out with The Last Falconry, a move he was moving away from at this time. Yeah, you are right on the money that this match felt longer in a good way. This had the true sense of a real epic. And it's, you know, one of those things that Shingo is able to bring to the table. I thought this was a top-notch Shingo Takagi performance. Now, he's had in his career 30 or 40 better matches than this. But this is one of those where you look at Shingo and just what he's able to do with Dragon Kid. He counters a 619 into a power slam on the apron. He hits maybe the most beautiful stage dream he's ever hit for a huge two count. Great he shot a, of it, by the way, too. Oh, my God. It's it's one of those things that Dragon Kid USA actually nailed. This is a show plagued with a lot of camera and production issues. That stage dream, they would go on to use that in video packages. I've seen this show before, but I've seen that stage dream like a hundred times because they nailed that shot and it looked so good. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying hey look at some random cards whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. 
But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. It's a big Made in Japan. Dragon Kid kicks out again. And then he hits the last falconry, gives the salute, and pins Dragon Kid for the three count. I think you might have loved this match a little bit more than me, but I loved this match. Oh, I think this is, if not one of, the best Dragon Kid versus Shingo Takagi match. I So... Yes, yeah, so let, let's talk about that real quick. So there's a King of Gate 2007 match between the two. I don't know if it ever aired. I know I haven't seen it. I haven't seen there's it. There's the, the King of Gate 2010 finals from April between these two, Cork and Hall. That is a great match. I think this one is a little bit better. And then, Mike, they had one more singles match in their career. Do you remember when that singles match was? King of Gate 2016? No, uh, it was October 9th, 2014, Cork and Hall, Dragon Gate ran Shingo versus Dragon Kid, Masato Yoshino versus BB Hulk, and Akira Tozawa versus Masaki Mochizuki, back to back to back. Oh yeah, this show. Express this show. versus Dial Hearts series that ruled. I think that Shingo versus Dragon Kid match, at least my memory of it, is that it was slightly better than the Untouchable match that we just rewatched. But it's Shingo versus Dragon Kid. There's no bad matches between them. Yeah, no, these two had great chemistry. Like, that was the thing, is that Shingo, especially when he got the confidence to play a bit of a bully, and now that you, like, mentioned the series, I'm starting to remember this match that you're talking about, the uh, Dia Hearts versus uh, Monster Express one, and he played a little bit more of a bully here, and that's what he did here. I went four and a half stars on this match. I thought that this was just Shingo really discovering like that gear that we started talking about that this is kind of his dry run before he becomes Mr. Selfish several years later. And it just was really like smartly worked. The idea of that they work the size difference and the power difference so well here that there are moments that Dragon Kid looks like he's going to be able to hit like a, a big desperation Rana, but he was not able to do it. And I remember one of the ones that Shingo did a buckle bomb out of it that looked crystal clear. The stage dream, probably the best edited stadium ever like the the production on this was they got him jumping off it with with uh dragon kid on his shoulders and then they cut right to where you could see the full rotation where he landed on the back of dragon kid there it just was absolutely gorgeous there is a little bit of a funny moment that gabe has clearly coded 
Shingo as a heel. He comes out, slaps hands with everyone in the front row, which I was amused by. You know, that's another consistency in canon thing that just amuses me. But I thought this was an incredible match. 15 minutes that felt like a half an hour. It really, like... And Shingo's going to go on a run here, and this was kind of the start of his run in Dragon Gate USA. I went four flat. I think it was a really great match, and by the end of it, I was completely content with the product they had given me. So it's it's a healthy and a happy four stars from me. You, you know, it's, it, sometimes you have like a match, you're like, that's great. I had a great time. That's four stars. That's, exactly. I no was very that. happy when all of this was over. It was not, not because it was over, but because I, I enjoyed the journey it took me on. For the next match and the next segment for us, we got taken on a journey itself as Gabe and DGUSA replayed clips from the Jimmy Jacobs reveal videos where the clip that they showed here was Jimmy calling John Maxley everything that he was. In case I know that you rediscovered these videos over the last few days. And it's some of the more interesting things I think Gabe has done in a time period, especially with like Jimmy Jacobs, given where Jimmy Jacobs was in 2010. So the cut of the Jimmy Jacobs revealed stuff that we watched on the cut of the show that we had, because we did not have, uh, we watched the show through the WWN subscription service. So we did not have the DVD menu that gave us the bonus options. So I just looked and on the DVD, you get what aired on YouTube, which was a three part video series. Each video was three to four minutes long called Jimmy Jacobs revealed on the cut of the show. We watched you get basically a minute of some of Jimmy Jacobs talking head footage spliced with what I thought was shoddy editing. Um, and it's a shame because I went back and watched all of the Jimmy Jacobs revealed videos last night because I was annoyed with the way that the video package came across. I just thought it looked corny and I wasn't into it. And then I watched the full thing and it is no technical feat. It is no feat of great production. It is not even the best storytelling that Gabe and Jimmy Jacobs would do together. But when you watch the Jimmy Jacobs revealed videos, they do a really good job of humanizing Jimmy Jacobs. And he takes you on this journey of basically his past year where he, he leaves ring of honor. I did not realize looking at his cage match last night that he never really stopped wrestling while he was getting clean. He just stopped wrestling at Ring of Honor. I thought he had taken a break, but he's working AAW and IWA Mid-South and a bunch of Michigan Indies nonstop. But he's talking about how he's turning his life around and how he's, you know, fighting his drug addiction and how Age of the Fall took him to a really dark place. And whether that's a work or a shoot, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. But it's a really well-done version of, I guess, early digital storytelling is what they were going for because it works as a YouTube clip. It works as three to five minute videos where you can digest the story really well. I was very disappointed that these videos were not, once I saw the full versions, that these videos were not spliced throughout the DVD cut that we had because I really think it was it would have been a much more efficient way of telling the Jimmy Jacobs story rather than just doing a bunch of blurbs and highlights of what he had to say, because the revealed stuff in full was, I would say, shockingly enjoyable. Yeah, this was one of the more interesting things about Jimmy Jacobs at this time, because this was also when the of when he was announced for Evolved and kind of came out as like this mystery wrestler and it ended up being Jimmy Jacobs. It was no technical feat, and 
people could probably argue that the stuff that was done before Age of the Fall and Ring of Honor was technically better, but I feel like that this really humanized Jimmy in a way that I'm not necessarily... I know that he's someone who has had some things with sobriety in his past, but I don't know how much of it was legit here or this, and if it was at this time, then they tapped into something incredibly real in a very fascinating way that added a layer to this feud that frankly was needed at this point and i feel like that gave a certain height to this because i remember watching these videos at this time before this match and this was like when jimmy jacobs was one of the best promos in the world and i feel like that like just like having a very kind of calm like it was he never really raises his voice in these videos he's just explaining like his path back and how john moxley mirrors him and he's seen like as seeing this through like him the, this john moxley thing he's like reassessing things he did in his past and i thought like that was really fascinating. I think that's one of the things that I'm sad that this cut did not have the full version or the extra videos on it. If you go look at this at the network, but I do believe like you mentioned that it was on YouTube so people can watch these parts of it. Cause it is incredibly fascinating and almost like required watching to watch these videos before watching this next match. The last professional wrestling show I was at in person was an AAW show where Jimmy Jacobs began managing Fred Yehi and the promos Jacobs cut throughout that night were as good as any promos on the indies. It is, and as I've gone on with this series, specifically after watching that Jacobs versus Shima match, I am continuously disappointed in the way that Jacobs had been typecast and continues, quite honestly, to be typecast because he is someone that is so often playing this deranged lunatic, unstable, this and that. There is a human element to Jimmy Jacobs that I find to be very likable. And there is Jimmy Jacobs, the wrestler, not the brawler, that I tend to really enjoy. And it's just a shame we never got more of that. It feels like once Age of the Fall happened, there was just no no point of return. We just That is the Jimmy Jacobs that we know now. That is the Jimmy Jacobs we saw in the Chicago Street Fight versus John Moxley. Yeah, this was... I felt like in a promotion where they've had issues with hardcore matches, I thought this was a pretty exceptional hardcore match. You know, I, I thought like, it was all right. I liked it. I liked it a whole lot. Like I wasn't, I thought that the Tommy Dreamer stuff was terrible. I thought that the stuff in Toronto was effective. And I, well, I really liked this thing. I thought that Jimmy coming out with his age of the fall jacket and blood and saying, I'm not being this. I'm going back even further doing that. I doing the berserker, the barbarian berserker gimmick was a little bit cringe, but I thought that like this was, if the production was better on this case, do you think you would like this more? Cause I feel like the production lets this match down. So that certainly hurts that I could not see half of this match because Gabe did not uh, have a camera light, nor did he light the venue with yeah. a brawl on the floor. So you are basically staring at pitch black for a, a decent chunk of this match. I will say I liked the transition that Jimmy did from the age of the fall jacket into his huskier. I think it worked because the crowd reacted to it. Right. And they knew what was happening. Had that fallen to silence, it would have been super uncomfortable, but the crowd seemed to like it. And as a result, I enjoyed that. And then for the match, it was fine. I mean, I, I gave it three and a half. I certainly did not hate this match, but I know just what these guys are capable of, and I feel like they have more left in the tank at some point. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I, w I was only a little higher than you, but you, you sounded more negative than you go three and a half. This is, I forgot what was the match where 
I was like, you know, I thought this match was really good, and I went low on it, and you talked me into going up. I went three and three quarters on this. I thought that this was, like, really well done. I thought Moxley bled really well in a really effective manner in this match. It's a really good Moxley match. It's kind of one of those, yeah. you know, there are, there are, you know, we have a good Shima match coming up. We had a good Shingo performance. This is individually a really good Moxley match. Yeah, and Moxley's finish in this match, which I don't think we mentioned, which was Moxley won this in 13 minutes and 24 seconds, where he wins after trying to suffocate Jimmy with his coat and chain and then gives him, like, 10 chair shots. And it was, like, a brutal way of doing this. Uh, one thing also happened in this match case that was alluded to earlier, uh, Brody Lee got to fight a Japanese guy. Yes, a great Brody Lee run-in. Yeah, so uh, at a certain point, it was after the uh, the uh, chain-assisted in time his uh, guillotine choke, which I thought, which I bought into this, that as, an, as like, the finish, Yamato came out for the save and gave a really sick-looking snap brain buster onto Jimmy Jacobs. Brody comes out, comes out and then starts brawling with Yamato. The two of them go back and forth for about a minute and then escape to the back. I thought it was really well done and finally gave us a payoff. Now we know who Brody Lee is focusing on. It's going to be Yamato. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I feel like it was so effective, and I think some one of the reasons why it was pretty effective is that we had, like, a really rare post-match thing that was immediately after the match, and I feel like that, that added a little bit to it. Uh, what were your thoughts about this post-match uh, vignette? That was, like, only 20 seconds, but I feel like it added a lot to this match. I thought it was unnecessary. Okay. That being said, it wasn't harmful. I just, I didn't think it added anything. It's, so what happened was, he, Jimmy is flat out after this match. He is taken to the back by ring crew. He's taken basically to, like, I can't tell if it was he was puking into a toilet or to a trash can, but he was like... I thought it was a bucket. Might have been a bucket. And they take him outside, and he leaves the arena. We don't hear from Jimmy Jacobs after that. And I we like we the, don't hear from Jimmy Jacobs. We do hear from one of the ring boys that was watching over him, and he says, it's okay, Jimmy, you're going to make it. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I think that is where I drew the line. Yeah, on that was a bit much. Was At no point... Did I fear Jimmy Jacobs' life with him throwing up into a bucket? I did think that was a little bit much. That is fair. That is fair. Uh, I thought it was a cool way of, like, the way that Mox took him out was very shocking. I feel like that that was a good job of Gabe following up on that. So that's why I liked it that much. I I think that's fair. Yeah. So after that, we had the aforementioned four-way freestyle uncaged match. They do not show proper respect. They call this a four-way match. But we know it's a four-way freestyle as rich swan drake younger johnny gargano face off against chuck taylor chuck taylor got the win with the awful waffle on drake younger in 10 minutes and 26 seconds and drake had himself a night i really like 2012 2013 drake younger i said this on the last show i don't know if it holds up but at the time i really liked that era of drake younger 2010 Gate usa drake younger does nothing for me. I thought Drake, his body looked like shit compared to everybody else's. And, you know, granted, Chuck, Johnny, and Rich Swan would become the faces of Dragon Gate USA very soon after this. <laughs> but it is clear that Drake is not in the same league as these guys. And I mean, the first spot of the first world spot for Drake Younger's match. Johnny Gargano does the lawn dart into the barricade and split his head open. Somehow, uh, Drake Younger just 
I guess he's there to bleed and take tough bumps, which bless his heart. It just felt so disjointed. But he pretty much was out for most of the rest of this match. And then we had the three guys who will become a very big will become a very big presence on Dragon Gate shows right after that. And the interesting thing about this was I feel like that Swan pretty much was the star of this match and and Chuck Taylor was able to swoop in and get the win here. Well, Swan certainly has the best spot of this match where he goes for his standing 450 on Johnny Gargano, doesn't fully rotate, and so he does a three a standing 360 double stomp. It was so gross. To the chest of Gargano. It looked so painful. I I would I think co-signed that. I really like Chuck Taylor in these matches. I think yeah. Taylor was really strong here. Drake is out of commission for most of the match. And then when he comes back, he and Gargano have a really good sequence that ends with Gargano countering the cop killer, which Drake calls Drake's landing where he kind of like reverse pedigrees Drake, which I had never really seen before. It, it was thought, the unprettier. It was Christian's unprettier, but kind of done from a pedigree position. Kind I of. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was it was really unique. I'd never seen a counter like that before. So the three guys that would be booked after this weekend looked very good. Yeah, yeah. And Chuck Taylor, again, 2010, he's a glue for these matches for how he'd be glue of the U.S. Indies for the next decade. And especially with someone like Rich Swan being so young here. And, and Gargano, each performance, he's stepping up. He's stepping up. He had that great performance against Shima, and he wasn't out of sync here. And we could already tell at this point that you know, hindsight, we know what's going to happen, but you could tell that after the show that there's definitely a lot of confidence in these three guys. So, Mike, let me ask you this. We had the four-way freestyle at the anniversary show that I gave four and a half stars to. I think that is a transcendent match. I think that is an important match. Sure. But I think that is one of those that, and we will see, Dragon Gate USA will run a ton more of these four-ways. Not for many phrase anymore. Now we're now we're in the era of the freestyle. And none of them really top that first match. And it no. goes back to the theory that Gabe Sapolsky had about the ladder war in Ring of Honor was that the first ladder war between Cena and Generico versus the Briscoe is a match that I gave five stars to. A match that was so good and so brutal that Gabe said he was never going to book another ladder war. And if you watch Gabe interviews, he stands by that now. You know, had he been in Ring of Honor in 2009, 2010, and had they needed a, a money-drawing climax to a feud, maybe Gabe would have changed his mind. But he says it so definitively in interviews that he would have never booked another ladder war that I choose to believe him. What do you think, with hindsight, with 10 years of hindsight, what is the better move? Keeping that one four-way from Enter the Dragon as the four-way freestyle match or trotting out a number of lesser versions that like this match, I felt like I could have seen this match on an AAW show an IWA mid South show. This felt like just another indie match to me. Whereas the enter the dragon one felt like a dragon gate USA property in a really, really special match. Yeah, no, this is other than like seeing like the steps forward for people like Gargano, this match isn't very special. Like it loses, it, it kind of loses the luster of what that first match was. So I'm with you on that. that. That's what I think is, yeah, you know, because again, like indies, you know, do four ways all the time and they're, you know, much like triple threat matches, they're always fine. But Gabe captured lightning in a bottle. He has, it's the best four way match I think I've ever seen. 
Unless I'm forgetting something, which I, I don't think uh, Chikara, I am. The Chikara King of Trios four-way. Oh, mm, Mike Spears. I tell you what, you got me there. But we're talking about, I mean, that's the, that's <laughs> the four-way. And, you know, yes, Chikara ran a bunch of other four-ways, so maybe... Maybe that's the legacy of Enter the Dragon, is that it is so good that much like that Chikara Farway, which, damn it, Mike, I can't believe you thought of that, because now, ugh, yeah, I, I wish I would have remembered that before I made this point, but maybe the Enter the Dragon match stands the test of time because it is the best four-way of the bunch, but I think it would have been very interesting for Gabe to go, you know what, we can't top that. Buy this DVD because you'll never see another match like it. And I understand his reasoning for wanting to tour this match, mm-hmm. but they never lived up to that first one. Yeah, like, that's the thing, is it, it's a very easy match, especially for new guys to do. You know, like, I mean, when you, like, look at this at this time, the first one you had guys that he's essentially trying out at this weekend. He brings back some of them, and he puts more people into this match and gives them more of a feature spot. It's a, I see how it is as a as a booking and promotion promotion tool but it does lose the relevancy of what that certain match was i mean the chikara four-way match is a certain match that existed for a day in time but then they've had so many four ways matches afterwards for that tournament that it's kind of lost its luster going along the same lines here i see this as a booking thing but you know and especially when you have a match like this where drake younger is basically there for like three minutes of it you know then it just feels like a three-way match and it's and it feels like a Throw a match that's very different from the throw a match in the opener, and that's interesting. But yeah, I, I think going back to your thesis, I think you're dead on about that. Oh, I'm glad you agree with me, Mike. No, it, it's one of those things that I think about that, that I haven't really thought too much about, you know? So, like, I'm thinking my, I, I'm talking as I think. So, it's just something. No, for sure. It's just something that, like, I totally see this as a booking thing, right? Especially at a point where it's now very clear with, like, the business side that Gabe needs to turn on the DGUSA superstar machine and then he needs to get well, DGUSA superstars and you know it just like it hurts but it's something that like, I get why it happens like if this was like a six way f- freestyle then we'd be like oh that four way one is special because we still have like other ones happen but that's the four way you know well if you want to talk about the superstar machine Mike I think we need to talk about this next match well Chuck Taylor's proud of himself beforehand that's why a I have... good Chuck Taylor promo because it's a Chuck Taylor promo he always hits it out of the park yeah Chuck or Ta- at the very least this one more of a base hit but he makes contact yeah 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 and it's something where I just say we're in my notes I do different colors for everything and blue pencil I have Chuck Taylor's proud of himself so <laughs> I think that's a good summation there but the superstar machine case was not just in full commission here the superstar machine the ggsa superstar machine perhaps produces its greatest superstar coming out of this next match as for the first time ever we would have the tag team that would later be called the spike mohicans and shima and ricochet defeat speed muscle doyoshi musato yoshino and naruki doi in 20 minutes and 48 seconds when ricochet got the pen on Naruki Doi with the double moonsault. And this is one of the guys. This is the night where Ricochet was made. If you're going to start a full career DVD of Ricochet, this is when you leave like the, oh, this is why I was a kid in Paducah, Kentucky. I was going to certain start spots and then things happen. This would be the start of like the elevation, like the hero's journey, you know, guys? 
this is like the next step in the hero's journey as this is the match that before the career really happened before he really went to japan this was ricochet's breakout performance i want to specifically break this segment up into two parts i want to talk about the match and then i want to talk about the post match oh we had to talk about the post match post match is amazing but as for the match i have seen this match numerous times at this point it's a dvd i had a dvd i loved a show i really liked i watched ricochet incredibly closely in this match because i knew what was coming i wasn't positive of the result but i i remembered enough to okay i, I know what's going to happen let me see how they get there and i watched ricochet basically be put through a drangate combine in this match where his first spot of the match he has a big series with yoshino that he kind of hangs with Yoshino. It looks like he's supposed to maybe do a kickflip off of Yoshino's chest. It doesn't totally work out. So you have a, a small blemish there. But as the match goes on, Ricochet gets his legs worked over. He sells really well. He and Shima, who, by the way, this is their first time teaming, and they have such natural chemistry as a tag team. It is so delightful to watch. And then the pace really quickens once Ricochet starts eating these Noruki doi slaps to the face, which if you've listened to an American talk about their time in Dragon Gate, their least favorite thing <laughs> typically is getting slapped in the face by Noruki doi because Noruki doi does not hold back and Ricochet eats a ton of these slaps to the face. And that is the moment where the match really starts to take shape, where the pace quickens, where the moves feel much more intense. Ricochet gets hit with the doi fives. He gets pinned, but he grabs the ropes. The match continues, and then he fights back, hits that crazy-looking regalplex, and then the double moonsault for the win. This felt true to the Dragon Gate style. This felt like a Dragon Gate tag match. A slight tier below the Speed Muscle versus Shingo and Dragon Kid tag match from last November, mm-hmm. but just as authentic of a style of match. It is the definitive, like you said, it is the definitive jumping off point for Ricochet's career because we are now a decade later and his life was changed by this match. Yeah, like words, like we talked a little bit about Ricochet on the uh, one year anniversary episode talking about how Shima scouted him. Like this was the guy that it's kind of admitted, it's not like outright said, the, the whole thing was based around the, the the caravan was Shima wanted to see Ricochet live and he saw him live and the amount of confidence that Gabe Sapolsky and Dragon Gate had in this guy who really not has not broken out anywhere he was doing Chikara stuff for a couple of years he was at this time maybe 2021 he looks vastly different than than the person he would become it's just something of like they put him in this, and you're absolutely right. This is a combine. This is a Dragon Gate match. This is a Dragon Gate match with the icon of the promotion against the most important tag team in the history of the promotion. And that would just, from this moment on, he his life would change. His career would change. He would have his first Dragon Gate tour at the end of that year. He would actually be one of the few Gaijin to stay for a final gate because he would on that first tour we will talk about this more in depth later win a title there and you look at his career and you look at this 
the Superstar Machine, like, came out and produced Mickey Mantle. Because Ricochet is... I don't know if Gabe Sapolsky has ever hit a bigger home run with one talent in one night than he did here. I mean, maybe the argument for the Generation Next guys, but this is taking someone and just elevating them in a way without hot-shotting him where it felt completely natural that he goes from a guy that could have worked the dark match in Philly. I'm sorry, the bonus card. I mean, he was bonus card fodder, essentially. That was his state in the Indies. He got put into a four-way match, but had he just been on the bonus card, like, you know, would have made sense. It's Ricochet in 2010. Who gives a shit? To this match where he now feels like a main eventer in this company in one night. And I think this is a time that it's worth taking a step back and reassessing the American stars. Because now we have had the introduction of Johnny Gargano. We've had the introduction of Rich Swan, We've had the introduction of Chuck Taylor. And we have the true introduction of Ricochet. For the majority of the remainder of the time of the series, these are the four guys. The yeah, Gabe. because you've got Brian Danielson, who's got one foot out the door. Brody Lee, who is, is pushed, but ultimately both due to his Japan commitments uh, and then him getting signed is, you know, not a, I, I don't think about Brody Lee's during USA run with, you know, a ton of, a ton of memories. No. I mean, I've seen most of the stuff he's there. He's really good when he's in Japan, but it's not what I associate Brody Lee with, but Ricochet specifically, but also Chuck Taylor, Rich Swan, Johnny Gargano, but Ricochet specifically, because we're talking about him, he is a Dragon Gate guy, and even during his time in New Japan where he was maybe not a New Japan contracted wrestler because I don't know what his contractual status was, but when he was full-time with New Japan, even when he didn't have that little Dragon Gate logo next to his name during the match cards, I still felt like Ricochet was a Dragon Gate guy, and it's mostly due to this match and then his commitment to being in the gym, to getting a better body, to becoming more charismatic. His 2011 series with Pac, which we'll detail on future episodes, his tag team with Shima. This is this is the Ricochet. This is the start of the Ricochet that became the biggest independent wrestler at one point, a guy that became a pushed commodity in Dragon Gate to a point that he won their top title, and a pushed commodity in New, in New Japan to a point where he not only won the best of the Super Juniors, but became an IWG, IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champion. And a guy that, and granted, I saw very little of it, but his time in NXT, I get the impression that he was really a superstar in NXT. And it is not to go back to the beginning, but it is only now that Ricochet feels like just another guy because for a decade, Ricochet felt spectacular, innovative, and unique. And it begins with this match. I mean, he won best of the Super Juniors when he was still considered a Dragon Gate guy. Yeah. Like, he... I, I've never mentioned this before. There's a period in 2013 where he wins Bola, he wins King of Gate. Like, he was covered as a Dragon Gate guy when he was the first ever guy to ever win the Open Digger Dreamgate Championship on the front page of the Observer website when Dragon Gate historically has not had that much coverage on the, the Wrestling Observer website. Like this is, like when, we're, like, like when I put the Mickey Mantle tag on it, I'm not bluffing. He, with the exception of Pac, he is the most important gaijin in Dragon Gate history. Mike, and are you ready to talk about the post-match? I have one question for you. Oh, go ahead. When I watched this match originally, this match absolutely blew my mind. 
How has this match held up for you each time you've watched it? You know, I don't remember the first time I watched this match, or at least my initial impressions of it. I know through 2020 eyes, it's a speed muscle match, and I am consistently amazed at the quality of speed muscles output. And then I look at just how, you know, Ricochet is is so young and isn't as polished, but he's in there with Shima, and you can tell Shima's, you know, put a lot of faith in him, and Ricochet delivers, and that's the important part. I went four and a half stars on this match. I adore this match because it's a style of wrestling that I, I tend to be higher on than most other people, but to me, this is is what wrestling should be. It tells a nice story with big moves, and I'm all about it. Yeah, it's a match that still has... I. Like, some of the matches I will, I like more on reviewing. This is a match I can't get out of my 20 head, 2010 head, you know? It, it's a match, like, I see it as, like, the time and place. The fact that Ricochet, a no one, was so comfortable in this match, and they had, Gabe had the, uh, everyone had the brass balls to say, you're going to put your finish on the longest reigning Open the Dreamgate champion, who at this time here was still an incredibly protected commodity. That's remarkable. Just coming off of a Summer Adventure Tag League win. Yeah, which was brought up in the match. Great. Actually, one of their greater jobs of continuity on the show. They brought up the Summer Adventure Tag League. And at this moment, we now need to go to the post-match, where Shima grabs a microphone and says, I quote, Amazing move, holy shit. Amazing move, holy shit. Amazing move, holy shit. Case, this might be one of the more fun Shima segments I think we will go through on this show. Shima is so damn charming in this segment, and I am not being facetious in any way when I say that, because you could tell, like, Shima kind of knows what he just saw. Like, he knows he now has a new toy to play with, like, that Ricochet is is going to be something, and I think Shima's genuinely excited about it, but he goes, you know, holy shit, and it's, you know, all of, all because of this double moonsault, and she was going, you know, how many times did you did you rotate? Was it one, two, 70, whatever? It's it's so great. I like that Shima tells Ricochet that he is the new Warriors member. He does not ask, would you like to join Warriors <laughs> International? Shima says, you, Ricochet, you are now in Warriors International, which leads to Johnny Gargano coming out. Gargano... Well, first, Shima says, Gargano, why are you here? Which, again, (laughs) knowing their relationship felt like a shoot. And then Gargano says, you know, he's maturing and that he's willing to give people props when they deserve it. Tonight, that person is Ricochet. Shima responds by saying, thank you. He agrees. And now, Johnny, you can go backstage. It is an awesome segment where Gargano, I was expecting him to attack Ricochet or to attack Shima. But no, Gargano goes out there to put ricochet over and then on top of that when everything is said and done they do the big warriors pose at the top of the ramp and then they show like seven different replays of the double moonsault it is you know the match is 20 minutes long with the post match it's probably a half hour it is the most efficient half hour of star building maybe that i have ever seen in professional wrestling i mean it is it's insane it, it will sound hyperbolic because of what I'm about to reference. And I'm not using the same scales. I think you have to look at, you know, promotions through their own lenses. 
in a weird way, though, tell me if I'm off on this because I, I okay. I'm not married to this, but I, I'm I will back down if you totally disagree. But I I really think that this for the Dragon Gate scale, and we're talking about Dragon Gate in the U.S. Indies. I am not comparing it to the peak era of one promotion, but this in a weird way has Jumbo Masawa vibes to it. No, I I think there is a correlation there. I think that, again, different yeah. goalposts, right? Different yeah. different scales, but in the context of what this promotion is, that feels like the healthiest comparison out there. Yeah, and really, with the exception of like the other American in the Ring, there, he becomes the Gaijin Ace. Like he he is the ace of Dragon Gate USA. It is him and Johnny Gargano. Johnny Gargano ended up being the American base uh, ace of. Uh, of Dragon Gate USA for reasons we will probably get into deeper into the series, but Ricochet became the representative of Dragon Gate USA in Japan. He decided, Gabe Sapolsky decided to, because this next match did not happen on pay-per-view, decided that he was going to devote 30 minutes on terrestrial pay-per-view in 2010 to anointing a star. And if you look at it at that vein, you look at it at what Ricochet was before and what his next decade would be, this might have been, like, context-wise, scale-wise, like, keeping that all in mind, one of, like, the best decisions Gabe Sapolsky probably ever made as a booker. I think if you were to ask the Dragon Gate side, or at least Shima, Dragon Gate USA was worth it because it led them to Ricochet, and I think it is as simple as that. Well, I mean, he becomes the—if Pac was there, Pac would have done it, but Pac would leave. But he becomes the, uh, the, the guy Janace. And but but Pac was there before Dragon Gate USA. Right. Ricochet is a property that was brought to them because of this promotion. So despite all of the hardships, possibly all the money lost, you got Ricochet out of it, and I think that makes this entire promotion justified in a in a real weird way. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a really weird comparison here. Please, I just made one, so go ahead. Oh, this one's gonna be even more wild. You ready okay. for this? This is he is. The star player, like, if you look at this as the uh, Dragon Gate office deciding to quote-unquote trade Mark Teixeira to the Atlanta Braves, he is the star of, the, he is the Elvis Andrews that comes back. Now, this is not a Texas Rangers podcast in which Mike and I both uh, remember the good old days of the 2011, 2010, 2012 Texas Rangers and how we desperately wanted them to win those World Series. But I follow your comparison completely. Basically, I think it alienated most people, but (laughs) I got it and I like it. Well, well, I'll explain this out here. The reason why I make the comparison is Dragon Gate made a significant investment in this, in Dragon Gate USA. The Texas Rangers had a significant investment that they went over to the Atlanta Braves. And coming back from Dragon Gate USA to Dragon Gate proper, you got Ricochet as your star, your ace. We spent the last like 20 minutes talking about how big it was. And then you had a bunch of other prospects on that team that became one of the bigger steals in that generation of baseball. And those are the other people that came across. Those are your Uha Nations, your Rich Swans, your Brody Lees for a short period of time, your Air Foxes, Chuck Taylors, you know, like the people that weren't there. But he was the superstar in the trade and the thing about this trade was elvis andrews was kind of seen as like okay he is this guy that could become a greatness 
and Elvis Andrews kind of has become like the through line for the last decade of the Texas Rangers in a lot of ways how you have to measure how Dragon Gate is now in a certain way as 2004 to 2010 specifically what happens in the last few months of 2010 and then 2011 to 2018 and that through line to me is ricochet Natalie Feliz also involved in that Mark Teixeira trade. I had a ton of Natalie Feliz stock at one point in my life. Oh, I mean, he was my fantasy closer for like two years. Yeah. Uh, Natalie Feliz, a guy who had a red glove, which is a good way to uh, make you one of my favorite baseball players. It is as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Who would be the the Natalie Feliz of Dragon Gate USA? I I think it's UHA Nation. I think you're right there. Yeah. a, A sustained... Or I'm sorry, rather a short peak, but a peak that was that was worth it. Yeah, man, Felice was an All Star. Like that's right. My God, he was an All Star. He was a Rookie of the Year. Yeah, this yeah. is great. We're gonna we're gonna do more. We're gonna pull up the Baseball Reference as well as the Drangate USA Newswire from here on out. This is a good. This is good. I mean, this is extremely me, and that thing came up in my head, and it was kind of weird in a way. But the thing that got me was I don't know if they really like clued in uh, Ricochet in the last segment about doing the Who. Like, see, the first time he did it, he was like, he was awkward about it. But he was like, oh, wait, no, this is something that we all do now. And he got really into it by the time he was up on the stage where they did the big one with him and Dragon Kid and Shima, who would later become Triangle Gate champions within two months. Incredible. Incredible. It is, it is a wonderful segment. And, and a great way to from, end the pay-per-view. Yes, from top to bottom, from the opening bell of that tag match until the conclusion of the double moonsault replays. That is essential viewing, in my opinion. I went four and a half stars on the tag match. Four and a quarter, but uh, it's weird when like you look, watch a match, you know they've had better matches since. That yeah, that is that is true. I don't know if did we ever get another Shima Ricochet versus Speed Muscle match? I thought we got one. Uh, didn't we get one at? Jeez, oh, that's another tangent. I'll figure that out. But I feel like that they've they've had matches since then, and it's gonna drive me nuts. That we are going a lot longer than I thought we would this episode, just because we're remembering things. This is no, I... but I mean, the, the Spiked Mohicans tag team is, you know, an essential essential tag team in the pantheon of Drangate. They are, you know, a part of what I think is a five-star match at Kobe World 2011. They consistently delivered both here in Drangate USA and abroad in Japan. I, I, think, I think they are a team that is worth dissecting as we go along and there are many combinations of Shimon Ricochet versus Masato Yoshino, but they never once wrestle uh, speed muscle as a unit ever again in a two versus two tag. You're right. It's not two versus two tag. You're right. Yeah. But that's not it for the showcase. Main event time. It is the untelevised main event as Brian Danielson would not be able to be on pay-per-view for obvious reasons because he was back in WWE and before his 90 days were up, he was back in WWE. We did not mention that, but that's something worth mentioning. Before Brian Danielson's first 90-day non-compete was up, he was already re-signed and back in the company. Just, it's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's one of those things that I'm ever, that I'm forever going to be like just bitter about in a lot of ways. But we've touched on that earlier. It is Yamato versus Brian Danielson. Brian Danielson gets a win in 23 minutes and 23 seconds with a little bell lock and. I liked how different of a match this felt than the Shingo Takagi match at the Enter the Dragon first year anniversary show. Yeah, it really jumped out to me that Danielson just took 
a lot of Yamato's offense and sold for Yamato very differently than the Dragon Gate crew was. And I specifically, you know, Yamato does that like toe kick where a guy is crouched over and Yamato kicks him in the head. I think it's one of the best looking things he does. And the way Danielson took that, I mean, it looked like Danielson got shot out of a cannon when the foot connected with his head and he bounced backwards in this great way. And it was fun watching Yamato. You know, I, I referenced a few episodes ago, you know, if there was ever a, a Drangate guy that would succeed and evolve for what that promotion is. So not a super Shisa, not someone doing Yave, but doing some sort of a hybrid MMA, it would be Yamato. He would have done really well on an Evolve show especially in those early days of Evolve when they were still trying to be something different. This is the closest we get to that because Yamato is is still at the height of his grappling powers. He's very engaging on the canvas. And he and Danielson went out there, and I thought they killed it. I, I remember, I, I will say this, I remember liking this match a little bit more, but I looked at this match going in as like a, upper tier match of the year candidate for 2010. I no longer think it's that, but I, at the same time, think it's really great. Yeah, I went four and a quarter on this. Okay, so did I. I think the thing that's so remarkable about this is for what, like, Bloodsport would end up being, this would have been, like, an incredible Bloodsport match. Like, just imagine, like, that kind of style because Danielson at this time, I mean... He was training. He lived in Las Vegas and trained at Extreme Couture. Remember how much that was always brought up for a long time? That he was yes. training at Extreme Couture. Yamato, of course, has his amateur MMA days. And it just had like little moments in this match. And they're different moments. There's a different energy here that I really liked. Like they started off having a just like their feeling out process, a lot of like posturing, a lot of like little advantages, little, little things until a moment where Yamato rips off his ring flags and throws them to the side and the crowd goes nuts for that because at this time and if you're watching this Yamato had ring flags basically through up until he turned into the almighty character that was kind of part of it part of him being battleship the second generation geku judo they had like these very ornate flags that were just attached to it he's tucked them in his pants and and his shorts and eventually they come out this is the only time i remember him just immediately after like a certain moment just going like screw this we're going after it and then they have like another five minutes of incredible grappling where danielson finally gets the advantage uh yamato takes a powder danielson thinks about going on to the do a tope but then yamato somehow does the fastest crawl under the ring that i've ever seen in wrestling it's remarkable that is true i had not thought about that when i watched the match but now that you mention it he made great time yeah, like do, doing like a, I'm just trying to think of how you crawl underneath the ring. Like you're just basically on your elbows and your knees. Like that's nuts. And then talking about the production things, uh, Danielson did his crazy tope into the crowd because Yamato thought, oh, I'm going to go take a powder out here. He can't get me here. No, Danielson cleared three rows and got to him and you could barely see it. And that was a moment like, especially reminiscent of like the Morishima match, like the big Morishima match with them at the uh, Hammerstein Ballroom. I wish we had the light on there. Because that would have been something that like music video people who do like the MV zone would have had a field day with. Yeah, I straight up like Danielson. You can see him dive, but what you cannot see him land. I mean, he dives into a a pit of blackness and darkness that is it's so obnoxious because this is the same venue where we had you know Davy diving <laughs> onto Shingo and we could see you know every second of it in all of its glory. 
and here it's Danielson, and he just you know jumps into the void essentially. It was the second time that the the darkness of this arena didn't you know affect my enjoyment of the match, but it was a noticeable blunder on the part of the Drangate USA production team. I wonder if like their their camera light broke between uh, last year and now. I mean, like that's the only rationale I could think about not having your camera light there because that would have been an obvious moment to get. But like this match really does feel like it, you, you were dead on when you said it could have been on the early Evolve shows. It could have been on a Bloodsport. I mean, Danielson did Ambition during his time away from WWE. These two guys could have had like the main event of an Ambition match, and it would have been insane. I think I'd still like to see Yamato work an Ambition show. That is something I had not thought of before, but something I would enjoy. I mean, it would be interesting, especially with how he's changed over the last decade. But I... That is true. I think I want 2010 Yamato in an Ambition <laughs> show now that you say it. Yeah, yeah. Not trying to get to any negs on Yamato. Like, Yamato is, other than BB Hulk, Yamato is kind of the relevation here that we've really noticed through this. But it's something that is, you like watch this and you're like, oh man, this could have really been something super special out of this. And it's cool that we got to see this kind of style of Yamato versus Danielson because 2019 Yamato versus Danielson would be a completely different match and not necessarily a match I'd be there for. It would certainly be different. I don't know what that would look like. All I know is that I'm glad that WWE, for all of their faults, let Danielson work this show and the show after because we got a Danielson versus Yamato match at a very interesting time and specifically Yamato's career. And like I said, four and a quarter stars for me in a, a fine way to cap off what I thought was a thrilling, untouchable 2010 show. Yeah, they've, after the rough weekend where it was still fun in, in Toronto, they've had two back-to-back bangers here, including our new best match of the promotion with Danielson and Shingo Takagi. And then, you know, I'm looking at my at my notes here. I think I have this mat- this show more consistently better than I have entered the Dragon 2010, which is something I did not think would happen until I watched the show again. Hmm. Yeah, that is that is probably true. Although if somebody asked me what is the better show between Untouchable and Enter the Dragon, I will say Enter the Dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Enter the Dragon as a standalone works a lot better. But I mean, geez, you're thinking about Shingo versus Danielson in comparison to Ricochet's rocket boost to being the guy. Those are two... That's a crazy back-to-back show. You know, like, two months and basically Gabe has set forth probably what would be the next... the remainder of the promotion. Well, we're a year into the promotion at this point, and it's still incredibly enjoyable. It is. And that is... In a way, it's dispelling the myth that, you know, Drangate USA started hot and then, you know, teetered off, but we also have another you know, three years to watch. So we'll see where it goes. But for now, I thought the Phoenix shows were a little rough. The Canada shows had ups and downs, but everything else has been really, really enjoyable. Yeah. And I felt like that, that was an incredible show. We did have two last things happen before they faded to black. Moxley came to attack. They came to attack Danielson, but Hulk made the save and, they never made another mention of Hulk of Danielson being a member of World One during this, but you kind of had this, which kind of like touching the nose that these two guys are still kind of aligned. Danielson challenges Moxley not to uh see because he, he's not a superstar. He he is a wrestler, but he wants a fight with John Moxley tomorrow night in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
Yeah, I liked that. I liked the way Danielson delivered the "I am coming to fight you" line, but the superstar wrestler stuff feels very dated. It does feel dated. And then we had that backstage thing right before it went off air, where John, where John Moxley was rallying the troops, responding to BB Hulk saying he was going to kill everyone in Kamikaze USA. Which, hey, that's a pretty heavy thing to say in <laughs> retrospect. And he ended this with hyping everyone up, bringing up the fact that Shingo put away Dragon Kid, Tozawa was his guy. And the two of them had like a little moment that I thought was kind of amusing. And then he's he he ended up the show by saying, "Don't make threats, BB Hulk." It's a it's a very solid way to conclude a great show. Once again, the aesthetic of Kamikaze USA shines bright. It was a very good and very enjoyable Untouchable 2010 show. Yeah, it's interesting how I felt like Kamikaze felt like a bigger force here in comparison to Toronto, and they were more sparingly used here. So I thought that, that was. That, I think that goes to my point that they were overused in Canada. Yeah. Uh, way, way too much Kamikaze USA here. They felt deadly. They felt dangerous. I really enjoyed their portion of the show. Now, the next show we have is the next night, as Danielson alluded to. It will be called Way of the Ronin. There's going to be one really big story that we'll cover next episode about that. But, Case, should we run down the card before we get out of here? I've got it right here. We are going to discuss Shima versus Chuck Taylor. Drake Younger versus Johnny Gargano, a six-way freestyle between Mike Quackenbush, Jimmy Jacobs, Silas Young, Kyle O'Reilly, Brody Lee, and Rich Swan in what looks like the NXT Performance Center offer match. <laughs> Eric Cannon versus Dragon Kid, Gran Akuma versus Ricochet, Brian Danielson versus John Moxley, and in the main event, a Dragon Gate-style six-man tag, World One, BB Hulk. Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi against Kamikaze USA of Akira Tozawa, Shingo Takagi, and Yamato. Different teams, but this is the big six and the people that were in Tozawa's last match in Dragon Gate. You're right. I did not realize that is the big six headlining a Dragon Gate USA show. That makes me even more excited to rewatch that match. That is really cool. The first time they revisited the big six after the Generation War was the big six versus the veterans. Yeah, that that is that is cool. I I was looking forward to rewatching that because I remember really liking it, but now I am really pumped. Yeah, I'm really stoked for this. This was a blast. I feel like our tenth episode went off with a bang. A lot of stories, a lot of tangents. Got to talk about Nefetalifolies, and that's why I call a good episode here. Case before we bring this in for a landing, do you got any plugs you want to throw out there? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can follow the Open the Voice Gate podcast account at Open Voice Gate. And I will once again plug my other podcast, the Art School Albums Podcast, a podcast that I have been tinkering with. You will see some production changes, too. So if if you listen to it and didn't like it in the coming weeks, I would recommend giving it another chance. I'm going to try to do some different stuff with that show. But that is all I've got. And you can find me at Fujiheya. And that'll do it for us here. We'll be back with you next week talking about Way of the Ronin. That's an ominous name. But for Case, I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time on Open the Voice Gate. Take care.